some of us fear assessment, uh, whether that be an exam at school or a performance review at work. Perhaps you've got to complete an assignment for university, go to a test at the doctor's, do a skill test in your sporting team or a fitness test or do a musical recital. Uh, Some of us fear assessment. We fear that we might fail, that we might be found out, that we might be embarrassed, that we might be given bad news. But some of us love assessment. Who are those people? People who love assessment. They look forward to assessment because it's an opportunity to prove themselves to me and everyone round about me. We love assessment, people like that, because we can show what we're capable of. It's a kind of reward for the hard work that we've done and the good performance. We know where we then sit in the pecking order if we've been into a competition. And we kind of look forward to assessment until we start to feel the pressure of that assessment. We start to get anxious and worried about messing up and not getting ourselves into the pecking order of where we think we should be in the pecking order of performing as well as we think we might really perform. One of my mates has a recurring nightmare about an assessment. And my mate owns his own manufacturing business, a quite successful business. He's got business qualifications, he's got trade qualifications, he's, he's been to TAFE, he's did his HSC, but he keeps having this recurring nightmare that one day while he's working in his workshop, in through the door walks his year 11 maths teacher to, 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 to show to him that he never actually passed the statistics exam that he has never to this day seen the results of and he keeps having this recurring nightmare that he failed that and his maths teacher walks in through the door of his business and takes away his business qualifications, his trade certificates, his HSC and his business. What a nightmare. How would you feel if Jesus walked through the door to do an assessment of your life? How would you feel if Jesus walked in this morning to do an assessment of our church? Would you be afraid? Would there be some worry or anxiety? What would Jesus say? Well, we need not guess. Jesus tells us exactly what he thinks in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. We've just read chapter 2, we're going to read chapter 3 next week, uh, if you're here. And Jesus tells us exactly what he thinks of us and our church and all churches. If you turn back into chapter 1 verse 4 you'll see that this letter that we call Revelation, which has been written down by John, is addressed to seven churches. And it has come from Jesus, it is a revelation from Jesus, to these seven churches there in chapter 1, verse 4. Now, while it's addressed to these specific churches in Roman Asia around Turkey in the first century... it has all churches in all ages in view. The number seven... Uh, is a number of completeness and of fullness, of extending. And God gave this revelation to John for all churches in all ages. Uh, So chapter 1 verse 3 
Uh, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. There's a blessing for everyone who reads this and takes it on board. Over in chapter 2 verse 7, chapter 2 verse 7 we see here that there's an expectation that what is written to the church in Ephesus is shared with other churches including us today. Verse 7, he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's to extend beyond the church in Ephesus. These seven letters though are collected here together for them to be read together. We're not to go into these seven church, these seven letters and try to work out the one that is most applicable to me or to our church to see me in this letter but not in that church. We don't need to do a kind of little checklist assessment to work out, are we an Ephesus church or are we a Pergamon church? Do I belong in Thyatira or I'm more of a Smyrnan? No, the letters are not collected, written and collected in that kind of a way so that we might pin down where we are like we're doing a Myers-Briggs assessment or something like that. They're collected down so that we hear the whole lot together and know what Jesus values, what it is that Jesus is concerned about. That's given away a little bit more in that you'll notice the seven letters follow a very similar structure. You can see there on the outline in the middle of Vital Info today, we're only going to look at four of the churches, but there's a pretty similar structure. First of all, it shows us who Jesus is. In each one of the letters, Jesus uh, 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 presents himself in a particular way. Who Jesus is, it then goes on to an assessment of what Jesus knows and what Jesus says and each letter concludes with a promise and and an invitation. Taking the letters together, they help us to know Jesus better and what he values, what he's concerned for, and they invite us into Jesus' eternal promise, into Jesus' eternal promises. And so rather than these letters be an assessment that should cause us worry and fear and anxiety, these letters shouldn't be like my mate's recurring nightmare of the assessment that's going to turn up from his statistics teacher. Now, Revelation is written as a warm pastoral letter to encourage and equip God's people for trusting and obeying Jesus in hard times. It's not supposed to leave us in fear and anxiety, but encouraged and equipped to keep on in trusting and obeying Jesus. Now, each one of the letters begins with an aspect of who Jesus is. And this opening verse of each letter is a little bit like climbing Mount Everest. I have never done it. I have absolutely no interest in doing it. Uh, I think most people who do it are a little bit silly. But I have some deep admiration and respect for them. From what I can work out about climbing to the summit of Mount Everest, it takes your breath away in two ways. First of all, there's the breathtaking view that is all around you. You are literally on top 
of the world and you can see out for miles that you might get a, a right perspective on the lay of the land. That is breathtaking. But the second way in which the summit of Mount Everest takes our breath away is what altitude does to us. Altitude makes it hard to breathe so that you need to focus on just one single task at hand. I was reading a blog article this week of a man and his wife who, who, who recently climbed to the top of uh, Mount Everest and back down again. Uh, one of their climbing uh, companions was, was quite ill through the night and needed medications uh, and this particular climber so focused he needed to be with the lack of breath and in, and, and in giving medicines to his dying companion that he didn't realise that his feet were getting frostbitten. The summit of Mount Everest takes our breath away in those two ways. And so it is, when revelation climbs us to the summit of who Jesus is, our breath is taken away in two ways. One, it gives us a view on eternity that reorientates us to our surroundings. And secondly, it focuses our attention in on what truly matters that we won't expend effort and energy and breath on things that Jesus is not concerned about. What we find out here about who Jesus is builds from the revelation of the true Jesus in the vision of chapter 1. Some of the things that we saw there last week, or you can flick back into Revelation chapter 1 if this is unfamiliar to you, we see there that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead the first to go into death and out the other side into resurrection to new eternal life. We saw him there in that vision that Jesus is the ruler and the powerful judge from God, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, that Jesus is the foundation of all that is right, that he is the first and the last, that he is the living one who holds the keys to death and who loves us. This is the kind of stuff that will take our breath away and focus our perspective our energy, our effort, our priorities, our breath on what Jesus is concerned for. Let's have a look at those things in these four, first of the four letters. First of all in Ephesus, verses 1 to 7, who is Jesus? Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. What we learn here about the uh, seven stars uh, tells us of Jesus' authority over the churches. The lampstands are representative of the churches and as Jesus walks between them, Jesus is present among them. Jesus have, has authority over the churches and Jesus is present among them. Jesus is in a position where he can make an honest and accurate assessment. Jesus can tell us what he values. Jesus is the one who can give a true assessment of the church. There's lots of people around us who have opinions about church and Christianity and its place in the world. We could and, and should listen to them and weigh up what they say. But it's Jesus' assessment that comes with the ultimate authority. And what does he know about this church uh, in Ephesus? Verse 2. 
Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. This is not an irrelevant church that is tucked away on the edge of town just to run cake stalls and funerals. Jesus knows this church and commends this church for taking a stand on truth and for that to be something that they persevere in, verses 2 to 3. Yet, verse 4, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now, Jesus is the one who ultimately loves his church. When Jesus walked the earth with his disciples, he showed them what love looked like among them. He modelled it to them. He commanded it. He said to them, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. The Apostle Paul says that it's being motivated by Christ's love that he is compelled to reach out to those around him who don't know Jesus. This church in Ephesus has lost that love. They might be honest people, they might be respected people, they are articulate, they are theologically sharp, but they are ineffective as a light to the world of Jesus' love. And in warning them, Jesus says he'll remove their lampstand, verse 5, if they don't return. Verse 5, remember the height from which you have fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But if they heed Jesus' warning, he gives them this promise and invitation in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. This here is a picture of the renewed creation in the presence of God. Each one of these letters finishes in a similar way that points us into the new heavens and the new earth. We only get a sentence or two about them here in each one of the letters, but they push us forwards into Revelation chapters 19, 20, 21 and 22. And you might like to read those chapters this week to fill out the picture. But we have here this phrase, to him who overcomes, or to him who conquers, or to him who is victorious. This is how the promise is received, by overcoming, by being victorious. But don't get it wrong, it's not by something achieved by us. It is achieved for us by Jesus. Jesus is the one who, is, who has overcome. Jesus is the one who has been victorious, who has conquered, so that those who belong to him in trust and obedience, so that those who have repented and returned to him in faith, they share in the promise of the one who has overcome. 
for the church in Ephesus and for it to be read to all the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, that's the first letter. Second letter uh, is directed to the church in Smyrna, verses 8 to 11. And first of all, it begins with who is Jesus, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Jesus is the first and the last. He is the one who has the perspective and rule over all creation and all time. Again, linking us back into the vision of Revelation 1. What does he know? What does Jesus know? Verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Christians in Smyrna were having a particularly hard time. Some of them knew poverty because of being excluded from the trade unions. We talked about this last week, that the trade unions and guilds, the merchants, would all have little worship ceremonies to the Roman emperor and the Roman gods. The Christians who were merchants and traders found themselves in a difficult position Would they participate in those religious ceremonies so they continue on trading and in business or would they take a stand and worship God alone and be kicked out of the trade union? As a result, nobody would do business with them. That is why they are in poverty and affliction. Now, the Jewish religion had certain exclusions in the Roman Empire uh, that they did not have to participate in those things and for a little while, particularly in a place like Smyrna, uh, Christian business people were given the same exemptions because they were kind of just treated like Jews from the perspective of the Roman Emperor. But as time went on, the Jews weren't quite so happy about that, so they went around exposing the Christians uh, to the Romans, said, we've got nothing to do with them, you have your way with them. Hence the reference in verse 9 to the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. They are not true Jews of the Old Testament. Because of, that, because of that, the Christians in Smyrna were at risk of imprisonment, torture and death, all because of their beliefs about Jesus. Now what does Jesus say about it? Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil, he's behind it all, he will put some of you in prison to test you. And you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Jesus says, it's tough. Jesus says, I know it's tough. And Jesus says, it's actually going to get tougher. It's not always pleasant to be a Christian. It's not always pleasant to follow after Jesus. It is not necessarily going to make our lives easier or better for now. It can get really, really unpleasant. Any one of us who are in a family where there's people who are Christian, who, 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 who don't like Christians, will know how unpleasant that can get. Some workplaces can be like that. In some places around the country uh, and around the world, uh, Christians do face imprisonment 
and torture and death for being Christian. But Jesus says that faithfulness to him is worth it. His promise there in verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Jesus has not only uh, gone before us through death and out the other side, he offers that same life to those who stick with him. Uh, If you follow our NLPC Facebook page, you'll see we put an article up there this morning uh, from the Gospel Coalition about the Gospel and its growth in Iran. In the 1980s and uh, 1990s, Christians there faced incredible opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out of the country. Evangelism was outlawed. Uh, Bibles were banned and over time became uh, more and more scarce. Uh, There are certainly uh, reports of pastors being killed uh, during those two decades. Uh, When I was a ministry trainee in Sydney, uh, one of the the responsibilities that I had was in uh, running Bible studies for Iranian refugees uh, in Villawood Detention Centre. Some of them there were converted became Christians. Some of them were deported back to Iran. Uh, Several of them planted underground churches in Iran, even at the risk of being killed for being a Christian. The report that we've posted today says that more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries put together. Why? Because they believe Jesus' promise. They believe that if they are faithful to Jesus, even to the point of death, Jesus will give them the crown of life. And that Jesus is the one who can offer that to them. So often God works through evil persecution to grow his church. Let's have a look at Pergamum. Verse 1, at verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. The double-edged sword is a sign that Jesus has ultimate authority to judge, which is a very threatening reality for this church in Pergamum. Look at what Jesus knows in verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Where Pergamum exists, where this church lives and breathes, is no spiritual paradise. It's a constant war against Satan. Our church today is not in a spiritual paradise. We are at constant war against Satan. The church in Pergamum belongs to Jesus and has shown that it is steady in its allegiance to Jesus. For example, Antipas there who was mentioned. But, verse 14, they welcome a buffet of religious tolerance. 
Verse 14, Nevertheless, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Uh, Balaam is mentioned in the Old Testament book of Numbers, uh, and while he was one particular dodgy character, has come to be representative of all false teachers who try to influence God's people into ungodly behaviour for their own financial gain. This is the direction that the Pergamums have gone. And so Jesus gives them a serious warning, verse 16, Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. But all is not lost. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Uh, Here's a collection of images that would have been familiar to the first century Christians uh, that connect to the Old Testament and to their own culture But basically what is being held out here is an invitation into fellowship with Jesus. That is on offer for them. That is promised for them. Moving on to Thyatira, verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is an image of Jesus as judge with pure moral foundation. There's some background here in Daniel chapter 10. But basically Jesus has the full picture on which he has authority to judge. In verse 23 he says uh, he can strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I'll repay each of you according to your deeds. Jesus has the full picture and what does he know about this church in Thyatira, verse 19? I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance and that you now are doing more than you did at first. They are commended. But, verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Who calls herself a prophetess? By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. They have given space for a false teacher. Jezebel's another character from the Old Testament, uh, like Balaam, who encourages compromise. Jesus says here to his church that the church cannot dabble in things that are an abuse of his rule. But even into the midst of that, he holds out a promise and an invitation. Verse 26. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Uh, This is calling uh, to our attention the background of Psalm chapter 2, one of the messianic psalms. And Jesus says, just as I have received authority from my Father, verse 28, I will also give him the morning star. The morning star is Jesus himself. Verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, Jesus invites and promises that those who overcome will have an invitation, to sh- uh, will share in his rule. Now we need to leave the three letters in chapter 3 to next week 
These first four letters show us who Jesus is and what he values in the church, what he's concerned about. When we're taken up to the Mount Everest summit of who Jesus is, as our breath is taken away and we are given perspective to focus on what's important, Jesus calls his churches to find their love again. Jesus calls his churches to keep following him in trust and obedience even when persecution comes. Jesus calls his churches to stick to the truth about him. Jesus warns his churches not to get drawn into spiritual immorality. Now as much as Christians in the first century need to know and be reminded of what matters to Jesus, we do too. There is pressure all around us to conform to the world in behaviour and to compromise on the truth about Jesus. It is essential and urgent that we each prayerfully and honestly reflect on our church and our lives, our attitude, our priorities, our passions and behaviours. To go back through these letters, Jesus gives serious warnings here that we must not overlook. But I'm not going to finish this morning with the question that we might have in our minds. What would Jesus say if he walked through the door to do an assessment of our life or church? Because the purpose of these letters is not to leave us with that question. The purpose of these letters is not to leave us uncertain or anxious or worried in introspection and condemned. Whether you're a Christian here this morning, perhaps someone who is a firm follower of Jesus, who takes his word seriously, maybe you're someone here this morning who is checking Jesus out, or someone and you've labelled yourself for yourself that you're an unbeliever. Wherever you're coming from, can I invite you into Jesus' wonderful promises here? To not be left with the worrying introspection and anxiety of what Jesus thinks of us and his church. But to hear his wonderful invitation into his renewed creation. Where death will not touch us. Into the new creation that is described as a banquet. Where we will know perfect relationship with God to be accepted by him in the same way that he accepts his son, Jesus. We're going to share together this morning in the Lord's Supper as we bring our service to a conclusion. And just like baptism, the Lord's Supper is a sign, a sign given to us by Jesus, a symbolic meal to remember his death and resurrection, but not as a memorial. It's an invitation, an invitation into his eternal promises. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus says in his letters to the churches, to the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. 
in one of the letters still coming, Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The Lord's Supper is given by Jesus as an invitation. An invitation to eat and drink as a sign that we have accepted Jesus' invitation. A sign that we have come to Jesus in repentance and faith. A sign that we believe who Jesus is. That we have been to the summit of Mount Everest and have our breath taken away so that our life might be reoriented around Jesus. We're going to sing in a moment in Christ alone. Words that express that reorientation of our life. One of the verses goes, In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. We don't need to worry about the anxiety of not being accepted by God when we've been to the summit and been reoriented to Jesus because the song concludes, for every sin on him was laid and here in the death of Christ I live. This morning, whether you're Christian, a firm follower of Jesus, someone checking Jesus out or so far in your life you think you're an unbeliever. I want to extend Jesus' invitation to you to come to the top of Everest. Have your breath taken away. Have your life reoriented in repentance and faith and join us in eating and drinking to know Jesus' promise for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life.